everyone. Welcome to the 16th episode of Unframed, a podcast which hosts talks and conversations about South African art and artists. I'm your host, Anthea Pockroy. This episode is a talk that I recorded at Witz Art Museum in July 2019 between two prolific South African artists, Sam Nklingetwa and William Kentridge, over the time that Sam's print retrospective was displayed at WAM. This talk continues from a previous conversation between the two last year at the Centre for the Less Good Idea. Both artists were born in 1955, a fact on which the talk was premised, and they engaged how their lives and careers have grown in parallel, sometimes converging over the decades. The conversation is moderated by Neil Dundas, a curator at the Goodman Gallery who has worked with both men for many decades. The focus of this conversation in this episode is largely on how music has been so influential to both their art practices, and so they have compiled a playlist to which they referred during the talk. Those music pieces haven't always translated well in the recording, so I've included the playlist in the show notes so that you can listen to each song with more appreciation. Enjoy listening to this engaging conversation with Sam Nklingetwa and William Kentridge. To introduce Sam Nklingetwa, whose exhibition um, I'm assuming now most of you will have seen, and William Kentridge, Born in 1955, and the idea of a conversation was the idea of the gentleman to my left and right. Um, because of the many things that have linked um, their careers and things they have in common, but equally things they've done differently over the years of evolving their careers, we did get into a little um, of the humour they both brought to how they ended up being artists and at which things they had previously failed. Um, I'm not sure I entirely believe that word, but it's one both of them have used. And we ended um, after a fairly lightning trip from 1955 to the early 1980s. And my last recollection then was that William was saying after he felt that politics and his early theatre studies had led him to being off to Paris to go and study mime. Sam's trajectory at that stage uh, was a little different. Um, they both then mentioned, well, we did both work for the SABC, but I felt it was a duty to let everybody know that the best and most rebellious part of Sam's early art career was being the only artist ever to have been expelled from Rourke's Drift. <laughs> but even better than that was that he went back to Rourke's Drift because the students staged a sit-in and demanded that the monks got hold of Bill Ainsley and said, bring him back, we're not going back to class without him. So an auspicious um, beginning for both careers then in the 80s with William going um, more obliquely, but of course the sort of work that he brought into puppetry and theatre later, and Sam going back and really becoming dedicated to printmaking, witness the gallery around you. And I think that um, with that in mind, I would actually like to think of asking each of you, um, Sam, perhaps as it's your show, 
What is the first memory in the 80s that you can think about telling us which really made you think, well, I've never mind what my parents thought about me studying art, never mind being expelled. Now I think I've found my, my place and my way forward. I think the first one was when we gathered as youngsters, um, Pet Maudra, Madipala, K. Hassan, etc., under the leadership of Bill Ainsley, David Kolwane, Peter Clark, Helen CBD, doing the, the first workshop in Rustenbeck. And uh, to, I think to us youngsters then, it was such a delight because we have never ever worked with senior artists in our lives and we could see the light at the end of the tunnel. So that, that always stands up, that Tupelo workshop. And with the, the same thing in mind, William. Well, I suppose it was, it was quite clear. I'd been making paintings, I'd been making etchings, and, but I always thought this was what I was doing while I was waiting to grow up. <laughs> and I always said I could, you know, things, I was always waiting to get my job at the United Building Society, as it was then. <laughs> and uh, at a certain point, I had a friend who had, in fact, made his way and was becoming a very successful person in the financial world as a banker. And I think I'd made this complaint once more about, oh, I'll get a job sometime in the Building Society. And he stopped me short and he said, you understand, you are... 29 years old, you've never had a job. No one will ever give you a job. You are unemployable. So either make a success or a failure of this art business, but stop going on about finding a job. And I thought, oh, all right. So then on visa forms, instead of writing technician, I always used to write technician when they wrote occupation, um, I started writing artist and checking what that sounded like. But there were two other things that corresponded to it. Um, the one was my parents emigrating, so they went to live in London, so suddenly I was no longer constituted just as the child in the household. Um, and the second was the year before the birth of our first child, Alice, in 1984, when I was uh, 28, turning 29. And I think that also suddenly gave, stop complaining about what you're going to do, who you're going to be, what will the future hold. You've got another mouth to feel, you've got another person to put your focus on. And when I took myself out of the equation in that way, it became so much easier just to do what I was doing, which was making pictures, making art. The, the interesting thing then, of course, there was a lot of pressure around the idea of get a proper job, um, and art was definitely not seen by many of the parental generation as a proper job. But I clearly recall also Bill saying you were a problem because you were rebellious. William and I were considered a problem because he said, no, Neil's messing around with advertising and William wants to be a theatre director, so don't watch what they're doing. He would say to people in drawing classes even, and I can remember the, the little bird drawing that we spoke about at the end of the last conversation, a family in the Free State had brought to show us, and William said, no, that's not mine. And then on the back of it, we found a stamp from the Joburg Art Foundation, and I said to him, you know what, I think there's a list from that show, and Sophia Ainsley remembered seeing it as well. She said, no, William made it in class and showed it at the Art Foundation. 
But I think a lot of what we might have done at the time, we wouldn't recognize today. Um, a few years have gone by. And out of those years, speak about a musical memory. When did music and your connection of jazz to the layering of your printing and painting begin? Well, music started early before I even went to Rockstrift because I was surrounded by two brothers who were, who were so much into jazz, especially the eldest brother, Ranky, who was also a jazz musician uh, playing a flute, a flugelhorn and, and piano. So that, that is something that I was so fortunate about and, uh, and it became part of my life. Uh, about uh, still, I think one of the vinyls that is up there of, of Dave Brubeck is a, it's a vinyl that I bought when I was about 17 years old. And uh, it's for uh, those of you who haven't seen it, it looks like the fish moths got hold of it as well as, as Sam. <laughs> and, and that relationship um, of the music to your own work, did you feel that it guided what you chose in terms of? imagery or non-imagery, going abstract with things out of the Art Foundation's program. Printing seems to have been the one thing that you really related strongly to in music. I think um, over the years, um, both Rockstrift and Underbill, printmaking was, was part, of, part of us. And I was fortunate to to, to be working with Mark Edwards. I think both of us, we work with Mark Edwards, who was such a very professional and kind-hearted person. And uh, when it comes to printmaking, I think I find it very hard to sort of like have a show, a solo show of paintings only without putting um, a body of work of, of prints. I mean, like, I've been, I've been a fan of that. I mean, as you can see with my show, The Journey, that uh, we talk about a print that was started in 1978 at Rockstrift, and uh, the last prints were done last year. So it's almost every second year I produce a body of, of, of prints. And yeah, jazz, jazz is always like there, whether it's like in an abstract form or figurative form, uh, I don't know, I get a bit lost. I, I was so frustrated when we were sort of like uh, uh, punished by the load shedding because like in my studio then I can't play music. <laughs> and then I said somebody has just taken oxygen out of me. So that was, yeah, but now I realized that I can't, I can't live without uh, listening to jazz. And William, in terms of live work with theatre, I mean, opera has become a major thing, but with a show like Sophia Town, did you always see the set drawing and the printmaking in the early collaborative days with Deborah and Robert within musical and performative terms as well? No, I think it took a while. I mean, I had very separate activities. I had drawing, which I was doing as a student, and then we had theatre work that I did while I was a student with Junction Avenue Theatre Company, and then later on there was filmmaking, and there were very different activities. Films were to be shown in film festivals, theatre pieces were to be shown in theatres, and drawings were to be shown in galleries. And there were very different uh, activities. And it took a long time for other people to show me how, in fact, they could be brought together as a single, as a single practice. 
Um, so it was not obvious. Gradually working in the theater, I realized I was using more and more music, so that was a kind of an easy trajectory to the world of opera. Mm -hmm. But I was very conservative. I thought, well, the first time somebody wanted to show one of my films in an exhibition, I was insulted. <laughs> I thought, I said to them, you can't show a film in a gallery. This was in the 1980s. I thought, you know, what do you think you're doing? You can show my drawings if you want to, but what are you doing wanting to show a film? And they said, okay, we'll show a drawing, but we want to show the films. And they showed the film, and I went to people at the exhibition. I thought, I'm sorry. I mean, it wasn't my idea. I know this is, <laughs> this is, this is ridiculous. And it took all the people at the exhibition to say, just stop complaining. In fact, this is more interesting for us than the drawings over there. And, it was, and I thought, oh, you're allowed to show films in exhibitions. And it was a kind of a, 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 with many of the things I did, I was kind of, that was explained to me what I was doing by other people. <laughs> That's um, an interesting thing. Fiona, could we have the sympathy? Okay, so the, the first piece of music, all the music, this is a bit like desert, desert island discs with the two of us on an island. <laughs> and I think that your music is easier for me, it's going to be easier for me to listen to than some of mine. But we start, it's all about voice. Well, this is and it's a range of different ways of thinking about the voice. So this is like the most easy, this is gorgeous, this is Pink Martini, singing cover versions of old favorites. We can just relax and let this one. Some of the others we can't relax. This one we can talk over, it doesn't harm it. We just have to speak quietly and leave gaps between for the music to come through. We can explain everything. There's a kind of movement and a breath the that goes together with it. I see, I can imagine this being something like the Little Morals. It could be with Little Morals. It could be with many other different projects that are yeah. there. There's a kind of an, there's a lightness in it. So I think there is a connection between the sound and what that does to the body and that obviously translates into what is the kind of mark, the kind of drawing, or the kind of performance you're doing. So in the same way that Sam needs to listen to, or loves to listen to jazz for the energy it gives as you're making the work, there's a sense of different music providing different kinds of, of, of energy, both in the studio and on the stage, obviously. But it's always astonishing how the way music enters, becomes a corporeal, becomes a body sensation. It does, absolutely it does, because uh, <clears throat> there's, there's this drive, because sometimes the only disadvantage when I, when I paint and listen to, to, to music in my studio is when I'm playing a vinyl that has got a scratch. <laughs> That's a serious problem, because like now I need to stop and try, and, but I mean, not often, you know, but that is, that is a disaster. That's a serious disadvantage. And how do you keep the oil paint and the glue off the vinyl? I have a vinyl player, but I'm terrified to use it while I'm actually working because of the charcoal dust, the mess, the ink. I, I use rubber gloves. When you're painting or when you're touching the record? I take off the rubber gloves when I go to the vinyl. Okay. <laughs> There's a useful tip uh, for, for the future. Um, I think that it might be a good idea to go on to William's next, um, because the, the evolution of the films and your working with somebody like Philip Miller and the extraordinary things that you have done together and the 
sometimes listening to the two of you if you're in conversation in a studio, he intuits things that you want the music to find within all the big projects that you're making already. Um, and you've used classical music along with African sound in ways that perhaps no other artist I can think of has. So let's just listen to this one for a moment, because you were talking about your brothers listening to jazz, and that was your connection to jazz. So my father used to love listening to German Lieder, of which this is one, with the fantastic singer Edita Gruberova. So my mother used to hate it. When she turned 50, she said one of the things she'd do when she was, now that she was 50, she was never going to listen to Lieder again, and she was never going to go to a Wagner opera again. <laughs> But uh, there's part of my father's genes that have come through into me. Because this, it's very different to the Pink Martini's voice, but it's a spectacular clear line that goes through. If we just listen for a moment when it sings. Well, this is, this is the kind of music that my wife can, can echo that we sleep with this. <laughs> we are at peace listening to this throughout the night. Classic FM until AM. <laughs> so this is a very different kind of energy, that liquid, honey-like movement that goes through. It would make one kind of etching very different to the relaxed movement of the pink martini. It's going to sustain where it would hold your energy before going down. These are the two easy listening ones, then we get to different things. Oh, okay. yeah. Love. But the, the easy listening comes to an end with some of the and directing her, of opera. And her voice is one of the spectacular voices, it, I think. It really is extraordinary. But then thinking about it, for many of you will have seen William's production of The Magic Flute. And I cannot think ever of any, and I've seen The Magic Flute in a number of cities in the world of different directors, but I've never yet seen The Queen of the Night better illustrated than in white against black, as she literally sings the universe, she bullies the universe with her voice into being, and you captured it incredibly brilliantly. I mean, special voices. Special voices, particular Next. pieces of music, <laughs> and yeah, that had a kind of a, a circle in the voice that's there in what Mozart wrote, that kind of suggests the images itself of the orbits of, orbits of stars. But I'm interested also in, in saying that you, you both listen to jazz, but a lot of your images are also of musicians, of instruments, of ensembles playing, not just the series right behind us, these great lithographs of particular heroes, but others of what an ensemble feels like. Yeah, like um, I remember a piece like um, the end of the shows, just like instruments, the audience has left and then somewhere there are instruments waiting for the performance. Yes, sometimes I sort of like, I, I feel, I kind of feel the essence of some of the musicians when this, because I've seen some performances, you see that this musician is in love with his instrument. I mean, like before the performance, you sort of like see him brushing his acoustic bass, 
touching is one, touching is saxophone, testing it. So they are in love. So I just like admire them. And the, for me, it's just to satisfy myself and just like do those instruments as piece of art. But you also work with the idea in layering, whether it be layers of color in print or things that you've worked and drawn and collaged and painted over in the same way that somebody might briskly run through variations on a theme and layer them musically. Well, the other thing, the other thing is like, I, I, somebody will think I'm crazy. I mean, I love acoustic bass. And then I've got three acoustic basses in my house, two at home, one in my studio. And then there was this excuse that um, I need to present my daughter with a baby grand, but I wanted to see it in the house. So it's, it's, it's those things that I enjoy to look at. There's a flute in the house. I, I want to be surrounded by those mus instruments apart from painting them. So I think the other part of me, I could be a musician, just like Miles Davis, who was also a painter, and Johnny Michel was a painter. So there's, and Sechmo, beautiful collages of Sechmo. So there's that link between uh, players and uh, visual artists. I mean, when I, was, when I was younger, I also, there was a piano in the house, and I thought, I can feel the music so in my body, I can completely feel the music, but I just have enough of this feeling in my hands. When I put them on the keys, the music will come out. <laughs> and of course, uh, that is not what comes out. <laughs> you know, you need 10 years or 20 years of practicing and learning what chords and what scales and to be able to just put your hands down. When you see a great jazz improviser, it seems like they just put their hands down and the piano just does the rest. But it's not the case. But the sense of having instruments, I once bought myself a euphonium that's like a small tuba a two-headed one from an antique music dealer. And I had at one point the crazy idea that I would learn to play the euphonium and had a teacher and had books. And then when I, we came to do Refuse the Hour with, uh, with many musicians, including great tuba players and, and trombone players and trumpet players, I said to Philip Miller, who was the composer, I said, right, this is my chance to play the euphonium. And eventually it was allowed, I was allowed to play one note, a D. <laughs> in one particular time. But after the third performance, he said, actually, you're messing it up with your teeth. <laughs> so it sits there as a kind of, it still sits in the studio and there are different instruments in the studio as a kind of, like some people used to put a skull on their desk to remind themselves that they are mortal, that, you know, this is where you're going to go. And this is a memento mori to say, yes, these are your absolute limits. Whatever images you have of yourself, don't go near that instrument. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, uh, it's so true because uh, um, one of my favorite uh, uh, tunes is by Keith Jarrett, Con Concert. And then I'll put it in, it will play, and I'll quickly rush to the baby grand and open it and, <laughs> and, and say to myself, it sounds so simple. How does it do it? And before I just get one note right, I've gone through seven, you know, trying to, to find, to find yeah. it. <laughs> Maybe we should play a fragment of the Keith. On our desert island disc, we discovered when we arrived that we'd each chosen a piece of Keith Jarrett's, and we'll just have a taste of each of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, can, we, can you go to the Jarrett's now? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, meaning of the blues. Meaning of the blues. There's a um, Sundays. I thought I'm the only one who's in love with this tune, but there's Kaya FM. There's this guy, Colin Curry. I think twice a month he plays his tune. And I said, well, I'm justified because like it's such a it's such a beautiful piece to listen to. And Keith Jarrett, I don't know, to me, he's my one and only best piano player. He's not always this gentle or this mellow. <laughs> it is a very beautiful piece. Will you go to the other one, Fee? So Shenandoah is William's choice. Oh. <laughs> yes, to me. Uh, yeah, for sure. So from an album called The Melody at Night With You. So they're old favorite songs, but just stretched and allowed to fill the space that Jared needs them to take. Well, he's got a very strong classical influence in him. You know, I mean, I do have a few albums whereby he's so deep into classic and with uh, orchestra. So I think for him to be solo, it's just like uh, taking a break or when he does his trio performances because he's an amazing composer and he's got energy. I mean, like his tracks, especially the con concert, I mean, like he's playing for a long, long time. So... The interesting thing about both of the works that you chose is that they definitely have a classical sounding overtone and they are both quite nostalgically melancholic. They're gentle um, and, well, there's some Jarrett that's not as gentle as these. Alice Coltrane was also a very good um, influence into some of John Coltrane's music because there's a lot of meditation in what they are doing. So I chose this because it's, it's, it's so soulful. to that could you imagine a place where you would use me a piece like that um, no certainly there are many places where it would work uh, could work extremely directly um, I mean what you find often with the music for particularly for animation in which there is um, talking about using film you know using music and there is, in film, one uses music and abuses music. Um, very often in the animation, the scenes are very disjointed, and you need something that helps you to link them together. And the kind of music does this in different ways, sometimes obviously in terms of it's happy, it's sad, in the most obvious, uh, giving you an emotional clue. But more interestingly, when it acts as a kind of a punctuation, which tells you this is caused by that, this is the beginning of a section, that's the end of a section, he has a new thought, all of those things, music indicates through its own grammar. 
But particularly with music like that, that we just listened to, there's a sense of a wheel turning inside it that just keeps it going and moving. And with the films, with the animated films, very often it's, I found it's been essential to find one level of the music that has this engine in it that is slowly moving along, just for the jerkiness of the frames of the film, of the drawings, to have a calmness and a rhythm that you can, that you can see. It changes how you actually see. So that would be good music to see by. It's the, it's the one track of the ones that I knew in the two lists that I was given tonight that if I'd been asked to guess, I would have thought that was William's choice, actually, so, which is why I wanted to know what you thought. Um, the, the other thing that we spoke briefly about um, in the last conversation and which we mentioned tonight is that both of you ended up choosing and using music or being asked to put your images to music that already existed in ways that might have been unexpected. And in your case, William, I'm thinking of the Mango Grooves um, working with you and, and asking you to be a part of their project. And from your point of view, very specifically, Sam, to look back at the history of the townships you'd lived in and what of your own work felt like it was illustrating that music or which of those music most remembered in your own mind connected you to back to those painful um, Morocco or parts of uh, other parts of the city um, I don't know who well, you want to speak about that first well well the, the other thing is I was I was fortunate to to be connected to some jazz musician at which was my effort I mean there was a group in, in Davyton called uh, the Jazz Ministers. And the Jazz Ministers, 1975, they went to Newport. Just, I think this was the first uh, South African group that was invited to perform there. And I made my way through. Fortunately, the trumpeter Johnny Megwa became a, a friend to my brother. And then I just like chipped in. I became now the friend of Johnny because I, I enjoyed what they were doing. So, and like, I, I always tried to sort of like reach out. I was, I was very close to, 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 to the late uh, Zim Nawana. I'm close to Fair Fako, who his print is somewhere here. And uh, it gives me so much pleasure to be connected to the jazz musician because like, I, I feel that we've got so much in common, but I don't think they realize that we we've got so much in common. So I always try to sort of like reach out and, and become a friend of, of a particular jazz musician. Like now, Heavy Twaidi performed uh, on, on the launch of, of this show. So it, I, I enjoy that. It, it gives me another angle as, 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 a, as a visual artist. And it connects directly to people you knew and were actually part of your life. Yes, people that I knew and some I didn't and like I do my research about people like Chris McGregor, Lemmy Special Mabaso, those guys who were like Sophia Tower during those times and like now recently, two years ago I made an effort to be connected to the son of Chris McGregor in France, Kai McGregor. So he was so excited that I know about his, his father and the group that they left South Africa to go and perform and stayed, in fact, in, in, in UK. So those are some of the things that uh, 
makes... I'm glad you mentioned Lenny Special Mabaso because it's something else that you have in common because he was playing with Mango Groove um, around the time that they asked you to... Yes, I mean, I think the Mango Groove was... It was a blip, it was there, it was made, it was done, but it's not the basis on which I would describe my connection to image and, and music. Uh, it used to irk me enormously that for a long time it was the favorite work of mine that my father, he thought it was the best thing I'd done. <laughs> irked, me no, irked me no end. That after everything else, that was the, that was the piece. It, it kind of made me decide never again to do a music video. <laughs> so, it's interesting because, in fact, neither one of you have done a lot of music video. It's been something relatively small-scale in terms of your relationship to music, and certainly yours, William, has gone on to be using music in connection very much to what you're directing and how you want your I staging. I mean, one, one could think of an opera as one big music video. <laughs> yeah. It's an extraordinarily complex music video. Um, Which um, yeah. brings then to the first opera that you directed was Monteverdi's Il Ritorno di Ulissi, and that has currently a revived production. The work, I mean, the, the interesting thing about music and about opera, and that's, I mean, that's one of the con strong connections to opera. In the, certainly in the Anglo-Saxon world, it's very hard to talk about emotions without irony. It's not done to feel an emotion directly. And one of the things that music does, it's unironic about its emotion, and opera particularly about a much wider range of emotions than one normally thinks of in music, of vengeance, uh, desire, love, hatred. All of these things are the big, you know, the big items of opera in which the music enables the emotion to be confronted and described completely directly. If you hate someone, you hate them with full passion. If you love someone, there's a complete expression of it uh, in the music. And that's kind of one of the wonderful things of working with opera and with the musicians in a room when you're rehearsing and performing it, is to have that. You know, in, in, when you're making a... And maybe for the singers too, maybe when the singers are singing it, even if they're singing about love or passion, they really think, is my breath right? Am I holding my shoulders right? Am I hitting the note? What's the other and what's the piano doing? So they're not actually involved with the emotion at all, only we as listeners. In the same way, when you're doing a drawing, whatever its subject, in the end one is lost in all the formal questions. Is the composition right? Is it too close to the edge? Is the color wrong? Rather than what is the emotion of the picture? I think... Mm. <laughs> you know, sorry, William. I'm, I'm just like... <laughs> Um, um, because like I've been pausing this, I, I should have stopped you when you finished that sentence. I wanted to, uh, Neil, just a little bit back, re rewind. 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 I wanted to ask you when you said that when you were young, your parents left to UK. How did you feel? Well, I think it was, a, at the time, it didn't feel like anything because they'd been spending some months overseas and some months in South Africa, so it was just like a, a slight shift. It was, you know. um, but it was only in retrospect thinking, did that give me a different sense of being able to be an artist? Was it my friend's comment about saying, you'll never get a job being an artist? Was it my parents leaving? Was it my daughter, our daughter being born? Um, 
Or was there a different motor going on? Um, yeah, it didn't feel like it, it didn't feel like momentous event at all. Um, okay, I I wish I was you because I would have jumped if my parents left because I felt somewhere that I was restricted in their presence to do no, art. No, I think that's right. I was uh, in relation to art. Yes. Okay. In relation to art, because like I didn't have a studio then, and the only time is to sort of like wait for the family to go to bed and then use the kitchen as your studio. And like most of the time, you can tell that my mother was furious because she couldn't understand why am I wasting time when people are getting proper jobs. So that's that's such a different experience because in our, I mean, as you described in the last talk, there were friends of the family that were artists. Um, there was always an interest in art. My mother used to take me to exhibitions. Um, it was something celebrated rather than, um, rather than questioned. My father was quite questioning about the nature of what I was doing, and the, but not the idea of art itself. So when I did the production of Wozzeck with Handspring Puppet Company, his question was not, his question was, as he put it, he said, I'm not saying it's impossible to do a production of Wozzeck with puppets. I'm just wondering why it's necessary. <laughs> and so it was, it was having to deal with that at the edge. And yes, when they went overseas, those questions did disappear. Not entirely, but there were less of them. There it's still been not quite on the same page. No, but I think it is, I mean, the circumstances growing up were so different in that, in that sense. It was so easy to fall back into being an artist when you come from a house like that and there's the support for it and there's the education for it and there's the, you know, if you need money for paint, there's money for paint. All of those things are there. So I'm very aware of the, of the particular privilege that a white South African childhood gives one or gave me. My, my mother would just like say, look at this whole street. Who is doing what you are doing? <laughs> So I was like on my own and some of the times where I felt that I could be productive because she was a religious person taking my younger brother and my younger sister going on an Easter holiday long weekend to go to church. Then I'll be productive because I feel that I'm, I'm all by myself, but I must make sure that I clean everything before she comes home. <laughs> but um, unfortunately later my mother was was saying to me, stop telling people that I deprived you to go and study art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's, the, the good part comes when your parents want to take some credit for how you, how you made it. That's a, that's a great part. Um, William, I was thinking about, before we put your next Tom Waits song on, how much you've played with the ideas of very different voices, whether it be Neo in a film like Secondhand Reading, or using something really cacophonous of two clashing bands coming together to illustrate something tumultuous in what you want to make as a film or a production. Um, what drew you to Tom Waits? And I know that you've been a fan for years. I think it's, I mean, there was, we, the first two pieces we listened to of the, of the two people singing, the Pink Martini and the editor Gruberova, are both about a kind of a beauty in the voice. Yeah. And to say, in fact, the voice can do all sorts of other things as well. And so there's something about the sandpaper in the voice of Tom Waits 
that really holds me, that there's both a kind of a hint, there's an, there's an echo of what we heard in Grubarova or in the Pink Martini, of the musical line that we heard in the Shenandoah that is somewhere there behind it, but that there's a roughness at the front that feels much closer to either the drawings I was doing or to what the sense is of the world around us. I mean, the Grubarova is kind of wishful thinking that the world could ever be like that, could be that pure and simple and benign. And Tom Waits brings us saying, no, this is a place of contestation of, of just in the quality of his voice, whatever the song he's singing. So this could have been one of many songs. So um, this is A Sight for Sore Eyes by Tom Waits. And it's just the quality of the voice on you. So it starts like Shenandoah. Both the kind of the clear melodic line we're familiar with, we can hear going through it. But it's out of focus, it's got a rough charcoal edge to it. The interesting thing is it follows a strict tempo for dancing. Oh, yeah. It has it's this lyrical waltz. piano behind it and a voice that goggled with rusty nails just before the recording. And I've collected Tom Waits' music for decades, and I bought the, an album just before this, and my parents' reaction to that, my mother said to me, who hated you enough to give you that? <laughs> <laughs> but this voice is similar to the movie Basquiat. At the end, I think when the, the film ends, and then there's the, a voice similar to this. Exactly. So the roughness of experience and the melancholy, again, that comes out of something like this. It's a broken voice, which brings us to the emotion of Sam's next choice, if we can have the Nina Simone, another person with a voice like an instrument. But your choice was an interesting one for tonight. Oh, yeah, Nina. <laughs> <laughs> While I was in France doing the residency, every night I was playing this tune. So this feels like taking Gruber over and bringing her into the world, bringing her down. It's got that purity of sound somewhere in it, and then a lot of life experience at the rough at the edges, pulling her back into the world. Earlier on, you mentioned something like when I. Um, 
the, the Alice Coltrane was playing and said something like grinding. I feel it here because like her voice is there, but there's this continuous uh, background. But there's also that moment where the emotion breaks the voice and eventually where anger comes through. Um, how are we doing for time? The, um, I think the next thing that I was going to ask you about was some of the very particular people that you've paid your tributes to um, and the connection then between the way jazz has evolved in a black culture that stood for activism, for deliberate um, finding a musical niche for itself in America and later here. Do you see a strong relationship still in perhaps contemporary Kwaito music and where that has come to in South Africa and in your more contemporary prints? And the kinds of things that came out of that period when we were looking at Patrick Gaspard's book on Satchmo and uh, Miles Davis's really early collages, which were associated with the civil rights movement. Are you talking about musicians? So I'm thinking about people who were both musicians and artists, or artists and musicians, but particularly how there was seen to be some kind of link between making art in a different way and the fact that jazz was going out on limb, as it were. Yeah. Um, talking about, I mean, that book of Louis Armstrong that uh, we got from Patrick Gaspard, I mean, to me, it was, it's a beautiful book. I didn't know that angle of Louis Armstrong, you know, like, um, unfortunately, I don't know, the museums might say, no, no, this is not quality for us, because, like, he was using literally masking tape, and there are marks that are there, so, but, I mean, that was beautifully done. And uh, going to music, I mean, you look at uh, Wintin Masalis and his brothers, they are inspired by the African-American collagist Romare Bearden. And, you know, sometimes you also feel or try to be in the shoes of your colleagues. I mean, I've paid tribute to William, Malin Duma, Dumile Feni, and that now, it takes me out of my space. Here's Sam. Um, He's into William's shoes. So that's, that's another form of getting inspiration by people that you admire, respect, and who, who you would say, I mean, they make lives. I want to talk a bit about your tribute series, uh, which are here in this ground floor. There are three uh, colored lithographic prints, and there are group of five on the wall here, or six, another one, or seven. Um, so I'd known these prints, and I'd known, and I know Sam's collages from when we were together at Reinhold Casera Gallery in the 1980s, 80s. the mid-80s. And in stupidly, I always assumed that these were collages, and that the uh, Helen Sabidi in the top of there was a reproduction of a Helen Sabidi that was just collaged on and that the Scotnesses over there were Scotnesses, reproductions of Scotnesses stuck onto the uh, paper. But there are two things to say. The one is that they are, they're not. They're drawings based on 
these works. So the, the three little Robert Hodginses, those tiny little ones, are actually beautiful Hodginses, which are in fact uh, do you know that? Works. Do you know he signed? He went to White River to sign, to those, sign them the whole well. edition. He signed those tiny prints. Oh, okay, sign them. <laughs> so, but they are, so the actual, there's a kind of an astonishing hidden lithographic skill in the way these pictures have transformed from oil painting or from drawings or from woodcuts into lithography in it. The other thing about the series that I, was it's so nice to see them in one exhibition together, all like this, is that it's a wonderful catalogue of domestic furniture. There are so many different kinds of chairs, of sofas, of the way they are drawn, and the pleasure in, okay, I'm going to draw a completely different chair, I'm going to do a completely different uh, sofa. So I'd seen each one individually, but until I saw them all in the exhibition together, I hadn't understood the pleasure of that element of them. Well, well, same here. This is the first time I see them together. I've seen them like <laughs> in various exhibitions, but I think it, it comes again from my experience as a studio interior designer with the SABC because we used to deal with space. And I think maybe one way or the other, I missed that when I was like now full-time artist. And I said, okay, let me revisit what I did at the SABC, but like now in a different form choosing some of the artists on the wall. It's a vacated space, but I played with different furniture, I played with color, so that's how I decided that it could sort of like bring the warmth. The most difficult one was uh, David Goldblatt's. But those are so good, because there are such good lithograph drawings of photographs seen at an angle. Yeah. I absolutely assumed that these were, until I really went up and studied, assumed that those were it has to do with the slightly yellow color of the, of the paper. It has to do with some. But just to go back to what you're saying about this coming out of your experience at SABC, because Neil alluded to the fact that we'd each served some time in the salt mines at the SABC. Um, for some years, um, I'd worked as a production designer on South African television programs. And this was in the period when I'd given up as an artist. I thought, I'm no good as an artist. I've got nothing to say. I tried to become a filmmaker. And the way I did that was by trying to learn filmmaking on TV dramas. One was uh, called Scotty Smith, which was a South African Western, supposedly set near Mafeking. But in fact, we filmed it on the gold mines outside of Johannesburg. But the one thing I learned from that was that when you make a film and you've got a room and you've got a studio of uh, these four walls, in order to light it and get your camera in the right position, you would take a wall away, you'd shift an angle, you discover, in fact, the lamp is at the wrong height for it to be next to Neil's head, so we put the table up on four boxes so that it is there. So what that showed me was a possibility of playing with perspective and playing with space in a very... Instead of feeling one was stuck with an Albertian single-point perspective and everything has to have a logic like that to say one can shift and turn the world from the way that you do in film in order to make it look like you're not doing it. In order to make, I mean, you put a short actor on an apple box so that they look the same height as the people they're acting with. All these kind of unnatural things in order to make it appear without any of this artifice. So it was interesting that we both in some strange ways. Well, so many things in common, let alone being born 55 and we were with Bill Ainsley at the Art Foundation in the late 70s. We were under Rhino Casire. Uh, Rhino Casire was the husband to Nadine Godim. I remember one particular Saturday, he was so furious 
And I said, Mr. Kassir, what's wrong? I said, look at this Jack. He says to me, hello, Mr. Godima. <laughs> yeah, Ronnie, he, he's, he spoke of that a couple of times. He didn't like being called Mr. Godima. But it, it's really interesting. I mean, from, from our point of view at the Goodman Gallery, the, one of the most exciting things about Ronnie deciding to retire and sell his gallery was that he phoned Linda and said, now look, there are two artists you have to really uh, take on. Um, we already had Prince of Williams in the gallery from the domestic scenes onwards and had done a little. And we'd seen um, and bought some things of yours from a market uh, theatre show. And Linda said, I know exactly which two you're going to suggest. And he said, come to lunch. And then, um, and I wasn't there, of course, at the lunch, but Linda said later, um, he stood up and made Linda sit next to William and said to William, now behave yourself, and, and walked off, and, but had told her in, in a letter that the condition for him closing his gallery was that we really ought to take both of you on. And the rest, as they say, is history. So, and that's a pretty good history. Um, going back to those, those um, lithographs, because they are really, they're remarkable in that you've never taken the lazy way out. In many instances, we've had people saying exactly what William has. Oh, but Sam's just collaged images of David's or of David Kawani's or um, of um, other artists like, um, in particular, Helen Sabidi, because of the, the complicatedness of that specific image, um, but also of um, Ephraim and Gatani because they recognize the image, they know they've seen the painting, they assume it must be a photograph, just reduced and glued in in some way. Um, I bought off that last tribute show, your tribute to Goldblatt, for the simple reason that I'd always coveted the now sold out image of the woman in the trance sky holding shells in her blanket and walking. And you've captured it so brilliantly down to the fabric and the texture of it and doing that in a lithographic crayon is not a very easy thing, especially when you're an expert collager who could have gotten away with putting the collage in. So it is something pretty special in the work. And I think there are things where you have made works on canvas where it becomes difficult to distinguish sometimes between what's been painted or what is collaged. But one of the biggest discoveries for me was to find that in a big painting of one of your exhibitions, you had made new tiny lithographic versions of your own pictures and put those as a collage into the painting. And then you made a print about it and called it homage to yourself. <laughs> um, those are kind of layers of things that actually I think only somebody who can appreciate scat singing um, and a nine-piece jazz orchestra all taking the liberty of going their own way can really appreciate. But, but I, I think it's also can be said the same way with uh, the way um, Marguerite interprets our works into tapestry, you know. So she's got, she's got her kind of skill. Sometimes she would just call you and say, oh my God, driving from Pinoni to but you must come, you must come. I've got an idea. And then you come there, she discusses with you. And then say, Max, go for it. Like the miners, the miners, I think it's sold out. That, that one is that, that jack. I mean, the, the lights on their helmet. She did magic with that. So even the Romabian one. 
So yeah, the Ramibetan one is extraordinary in its coloring. And in, it's another thing the two of you have had in common is also working collaboratively in the way that you do with many people, whether that be Robert, in your case, Robert and Deborah, or working with Mags. And William, you've spoken about the idea of wanting something on an operatic scale and that obviously not drawing something the size of the proscenium of a major opera house in the world, but having it woven in five by six meters by someone else. But they've worked incredibly well. Yeah, I mean, I think one to go back to the theme which has been, um, which is the first work of yours that I, I, I saw and the first work I remember, which had to do with collage. And I think it goes back to, I'm not sure if it was the start of collage for you, but I remember Bill Ainsley at the Art Foundation showing us a book of works of Romare Bearden, the great uh, American, African-American collage, collagist, um, who would take magazine photos and a bit of painting and make these extraordinary, unlike other, any, any other images that were being made in the United States at that, at that time. And kind of Sam started doing collage and I thought, damn, okay, Sam's doing that. I can't do that. He's, he's, and I can't, I can't do the same thing that's being done. Um, there were some other people, and Sassoon at the time was doing a lot of painting on top of old studio black and white photographs. So there was a sense of photographs and paintings being a form that people did work with. But the, the long-term commitment to collage as a way of constructing an image, whether it's a physical collage or like these beautiful photo lithos, which had a, a literal collage at some point in the history but then become lithographs, and are no longer collages. Um, for me, it's an interesting thing because it's, it still seems to be that collage is such a central way of understanding the world, of, of it not just being a way of making a picture, but the way of making a picture being a demonstration of how we do, whether we like it or not, make sense of the world. Yeah. Um... What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Don't have to say anything. Yeah, well, I I enjoy doing it, and um, and sometimes yes, I take a break by doing prints. But yeah, collage is my number one medium. And would you say charcoal is your number one medium? Yeah, yeah. it is. It's it's getting back to basics. So you yeah. may spend some years doing other things or doing an opera, then coming back into the studio to do charcoal drawings feels like one's doing one scales, one's back. But touching base on that again, to tell the audience is that uh, Bill Ainsley was like uh, the good teacher when it comes to, to, to drawing. I mean, like uh, we both learned from Bill about uh, charcoal drawing, but I didn't take it further. It's something that I would do on a small scale, but uh, yeah, William is the master. Tell that to the people whose tobacco fields you drew in Cuba. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You did take it further, maybe just not as much. You no, have yeah, no. chosen yes. media. Yes, Those are the yes. things that are not necessarily in the common. To and yet, when William uses charcoal or ink, it's on book pages, and it's layering also many times images from a, a past, but brought back and repurposed. And that is something that both of your practices do as well. William, which do you think, um, if we don't go to all of them, should we have... Avis? Uh, yes, we can listen to Avis de Tompet. So this is a piece which is, again, voices being used in a very different, in a very different way. It's kind of the thing that uh, shows the possibility of what, 
a voice can do as, not necessarily in theater, in this it's not in fact a theatrical piece. It's about a, a piece of music by uh, Apergis um, called Notice of a Storm, War Storm Warning. We can play it, we won't talk so much over it, just play a minute of it quite loud. Bit louder. course there are elements of of what you make in terms of drawing and and mark making but the processes by which you speak of your studio practice that the great thing of being able to undo unsay and remember go backwards make something less intelligible or more intelligible by the kind of layering that goes into it yeah i mean this is just a nice example of obviously a layer of people speaking and then recorded and speeded up and chopped up and done different things and then a acoustic layer on top of that um, just becomes very exciting about what you could how you could imagine working in that direction field so this might be something i would play to musicians during a workshop or when we're preparing a new piece to think this is one way of thinking about what a voice can do or voices can do in different ways in fact we're in the middle of preparing a new opera and it reminds me i ought to play it to Ensemble to say this is one extra way of thinking we're doing a lot with speaking voices speaking in pitch so the notes of a song, but speaking, not singing. And this would be a variation on that. Tell us a little bit about your current working on Sybil, because that will come up soon. So Waiting for the Sybil is a one-act opera that we do in Rome for the Rome Opera, just with six Johannesburg singers and three dancers from Johannesburg. Um, it's very much started as a series of improvisations. Um, and it's a one-act opera because it is shown in Rome together with the one-act opera that uh, Alexander Calder, the American artist, made in the 1960s, which is about mobiles turning. And we chose the Sybil for the story, the emblematic story of the Sybil, who's like a Greek prophetess. So it's very much about telling the future and things. And the myth is that, or the story is, you would go to the Sybil with your question, and she lives in a cave outside Naples, and you'd give her your question, and she'd write the answer to your question. How long will I live? What will my future be? Whatever the questions you want to ask. She'd write them on an oak leaf, and there'd be this pile of oak leaves at the entrance to her cave, and you'd go to take your leaf with your answer, but as you got there, there would always be a wind that would come up and blow the leaves round like in a mobile, so you never knew if you were getting your fate or someone else's fate. So the Sybil knew, but you didn't know. And I suppose that's this fundamental myth that there is a future when you look back, there is a fate we're heading towards, but until you reach it, you don't know what it will be. And so that's with six singers and three dancers. 
turning in circles. Mm. But there, there is the mind that thinks in all of these dimensions, whether it be how people are going to perceive it, looking at it, what they're going to hear. Um, I was really interested and surprised by some of what was we were hearing in your um, centre for the Les Good Idea with the simple turning and but how well the music and even the person cast um, in a big production like this, um, and I mean with all the various facets of it, every link in the chain has to work really well. And it's that vision um, and maybe that having, as you like to say, failed in various things, but brought them all together and made them a success by having the mind that gets around. Well, it's only opens in October, so success we have to wait to see. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think it's going to be a cracking we'll success, and yeah. we certainly wish you success with it. September. Sam, oh, um, September. I'm giving myself an extra month that yeah, I don't have. Yeah, September. Um, shall, we, shall we do Miles? Okay. So um, let's have the Miles Davis fee. Um, maybe it'll warm the cockles of our heart on a cold night. Yeah, summertime in winter. So this, this gives everyone the idea of the mood in my studio when I work. So Miles all the time when I left home, I remember I left two vinyls of Miles Davis on my tent table. So this is this is the mood in my studio all the time when I paint. It's a good idea when it's six degrees in the morning in August house to listen to summer. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the choices of some of the characters like Nina Simone, um, I've always liked the title you gave the one particular musical tribute lithograph and it's Dear. Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah, Ella. Um, and it's, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a moment of giving oneself away. She's a, she's a great favorite, but um, you also portrayed her at a time, a robust time of her life, whereas we all got to know her frail and failing and tottering out on stage to sit on a stool and sing. Well, the thing is, like, uh, she inspired me when she was still, like, the very strong, powerful singer. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Mark was equally surprised uh, when I would say, uh, out of the series of 10, uh, the three female singers were sold out before the rest because it was her, Miriam Makeba, and Nina Simone. I remember I, remember I did um, also, I don't know whether it's here, um, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and some at the, at, at the gallery. And then this, this guy said to me, tell me, do you really know about Sammy Davis? I said, oh yes, he's my favorite singer. And he said to me, but he was not tall. <laughs> <laughs> they put him on a box, it was fine. <laughs> and I said, he was not tall, but it's, he stood toe to toe with the with the tallest. With the yeah. tallest, yeah. yeah. The, the relationship between music um, in this country and what people have drawn, painted, collaged, 
made into animations has to a very large degree also been driven by what's going on around us. Both of you have depicted a lot of the journey of the country, not only your journey through printmaking and the people you've known and admired through that, or in William's case, the kinds of responses to very particular things that have happened in the country and taking classic opera or theater and relating it back directly to things that Johannesburgers certainly can see in their everyday lives of the time. Has that been important? And, and are there things, are there musical and artistic memories of other people that connected to the work that you were doing at the time, would you say? I mean, there are. There are I mean, I think artists are hyenas or scavengers in terms of finding things that other people have left or haven't even left and taking pieces of them and feeding on what... Uh, there's always a double history. There's a history of the world that you're connected to and there's a history of image making or sound making that you're connected to. And they both, they're both arrive in the studio. No image is made without a memory of another image that has been seen before by the person making. And every sound is connected to other sounds that are lodged in hearers' ears to know how they, where they come from and how they come. But there, there are, there are, I mean, the last piece of music, which maybe is a bit brutal to, to play, is it's a, it's a piece by uh, Golichov, an Argentinian composer, and it's from an opera about the death of Garcia Lorca. And it's, a, it's an interesting one because it's mainly consists of the section, this, this particular section, mainly consists of gunshots and a lament for it, but it needs to be played loud, I'm afraid. But it has to do with taking something that's a gunshot and allowing it to find a rhythm that becomes something else. turbulence around us but uh... so I mean that became a key piece of music in my head when we started working on the head and the load which is a piece about Africa in the first world war so not connected to Lorca or to Golichov or to that particular but that sense of what are the ways that the sound of war can be made in different ways between the voice and instruments uh, we found that if you slap the legs of an aluminium ladder together it makes a very good gunshot sound <laughs> so we're working at the moment on a piece which is someone with a ladder, pumping the ladder. <laughs> the, um, I think the privilege for all of us tonight is to hear people who not only make things that we can look at and be inspired by, but who also refer us back to things perhaps we've heard many times over and haven't necessarily connected particularly to a work of visual art, but people whose words also not just eloquently, but brilliantly, can evoke for us what they're doing. 
and remind us of the things we've seen by both of them. And thank you both really for the kind of time and energy that you've put into making all of our lives richer. And you really have. There is a work um, that we haven't played yet of your choices, but I think if there's one thing that everybody knows about Sam, it's partly because of being in the jazz community. It's partly because of being the man who collects vinyl records and has probably more than anyone else in the world now um, and collects vintage cars and uh, has always been known to be always perfectly dressed for the right occasion. So we, we will, for that reason, play finally Joni Mitchell's Be Cool. Um, and I would say to all of you, it's a very good way to end a discussion with Sam and William. Um, let's be cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you to Sam and William for your insights into your lives and art practices. And to Neil for being a wonderful moderator as always. Thank you to Witz Art Museum for allowing me to record this talk and to publish it on Unframed. Please support Unframed by following us on Facebook and Instagram and by sharing the episodes that you enjoy. You can also write a review on Facebook as well as on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining me today. See you next time. Bye. Bye.